Hey guys, before we get into today's episode, I just want to go ahead and share a couple of announcements. So one, right now we are in residency season, okay? So if you need help with your CV review, letter of intent, any guidance through the process, feel free to just go ahead and sign up at tinyurl.com slash podcast, and we're going to go ahead and help you out. And we just also included a residency package service. So that's one where you can go ahead and get your letter of intent review, CV review, and residency mock interview all in one. Um, It's a lot cheaper to do that than to go ahead and and buy it separately. So definitely trying to save you all some money. Definitely just trying to help you all out. If money's an issue, please still sign up. I want want to be able to help. I'm still positive there's a way that I can help you. So go ahead and sign up, tinyurl.com slash services, and we'll do the best that we can to help you with that. And since... It is residency season. Um, I had the opportunity to go ahead and connect with a residency program director. And so we're going to do an Instagram live on November 26th. We haven't finalized the time yet. Uh, so stay tuned, especially on Instagram for what time we'll do it. But on November 26th, Sunday, November 26th, I'm going to be on IG live with a residency program director. So if you have any questions, please feel free to hop on. And it's going to be a two-part series. Uh, This first part on November 26th will be more geared towards the mid-year experience. So how you as a residency candidate can stand out during mid-year and also what you should be focused on, how to network, different things like that. So it's really going to be more focused on the mid-year experience, and then we'll probably do a follow-up in a couple weeks after that on how to really maximize your CV and letter of intent, okay? But first things first, because mid-year comes first, we definitely want to get you some content out there uh, to kind of help you all navigate that mid-year process and really how to stand out. And like I said before, go ahead and sign up at tinyurl.com slash services. Now, same thing. It's also fellowship season. If you need help with your fellowship interviews, with your CV, please sign up. We're here to help you all. Um, so definitely I can connect you with some some of my peers that are working in the field, and they'll definitely do the best that they can to help you out with all of that. And, of course, we still have the merch. So CapsRx Podcast merch is out now. Uh, you can go ahead and find it on Teespring. I have the link in our bio um, and it's in our link tree so you can go ahead and go there and purchase some merch today and last but not least i gotta say thank you all right it's incredible what we're doing man um we just crossed 50 subscribers on youtube i want to say might be 55 today it might be 55 but we just crossed the, the 50 barriers for subscribers on youtube so thank you everybody for going on to youtube and tuning in and supporting us on that platform we greatly appreciate it there is some content that's on there that i don't have on instagram and tiktok i try to keep that a little bit separate uh so definitely go ahead hop on there and definitely tune into some of the content that's on there also I want to say thank you to everybody that's been following, liking, and sharing our content on Instagram. We just crossed the 500 follower barrier as well on there. So that's pretty impressive. That's super cool. Did all that within a year. So I'm super proud of us, um, the team, and then everybody who's a fan for liking and sharing and commenting because that helps the algorithm and helps us to get noticed by other pharmacy students. And if you haven't yet, now's the time to do it. Go ahead and like, follow, subscribe, comment, share share our content, all right? At new underscore CapsRx podcast on all platforms, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. So definitely go ahead and follow us now and share if you haven't had the chance. And last but not least, I just want to say thank you to all the people who have been sending me some encouraging, motivational, and inspiring messages, all right? Y'all are awesome because <laughs> it's not easy doing all this work. Um, takes a lot of my free time, <laughs> but I'm thankful for you all that message me and who have been leaving some some positive reinforcement in the comments. Like it means the world to me. So I definitely want to shed light on that and say thank you for that. Thank you for for trusting in me and believing in us and and appreciating the content that we put out. And that's what makes me keep going. So it's like, I feel like I can't let y'all down whenever y'all y'all hit me with one of those just loving and super thankful messages. And it's like, I'm, I'm just like in awe. <laughs> I'm just in awe. But just want to say thank you 
to you all. You all, you know who you are because I've messaged you personally and I said thank you and let y'all know that it really does help me keep going. So if any of y'all appreciate what I'm doing, please, please let me know. It helps me feel better. So please, please, please shoot us a message. I can share it with the team um, because we're all about positive reinforcement. So thank you so much. And thank you also to all the new people who have been appreciating the content. We've been receiving some emails um, and different messages from other creators who want to connect. So we appreciate that too. Y'all see the hard work that we're doing. You like the content that we're putting out and, and how we're navigating in this space. So you all want to connect and collaborate with us. So we're super thankful for that. And so um, just wanted to make these announcements. And that's about it. So go ahead, like, comment, follow, subscribe, and share our content at new underscore CapsRx podcast. Now let's get into today's episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Capsule Arcs Podcast. Today, I'll be your host, Dr. Joven Lazo. And today's guest is a reoccurring guest, which I don't get to say often. So I'm honored to have this guest again. And last time we had this guest, he was a pharmacy student. And then he became a pharmacist. And now he's a PGY1 trained pharmacist. So he keeps adding accolades to his name. And so I'm excited to announce Dr. Victor Perez to the stage. How are you today? Great. I'm doing great. How are you, Joven? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. So I'm super excited to have you on because I know you just completed a super interesting and different community pharmacy residency. And it's unique because it's more in the specialty setting rather than the typical community setting when it comes to a residency. So because I know specialty is a growing field, a lot of people have interest in that. I thought it'd be great to have you on. And so before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted you to kind of give a brief introduction to our audience and just let them know who you are, what you're doing, kind of everything you've been up to. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Victor Perez. As Joven had mentioned, I just finished my PGY1 community-based residency with the Ohio State University College of Pharmacy. I went to pharmacy school down at the University of South Florida in Tampa. And so I moved up to Columbus for residency. And right now I'm in that job search. So... I would say with my structure of my residency, it was very much, as Joven said, a specialty focus, but a specialty focus with HIV. So dealing a lot with the LGBTQ plus community here in Columbus, and then also taking charge of some patients in the primary care side. So it was a mix of community practice and specialty, but then also ambulatory care, which I think is a very great structure to have for a community-based program. Yeah, I completely agree. And I've said this before, and I still think this is the future of pharmacy because it makes no sense to me for someone to go to an ambulatory care clinic and then have to leave that pharmacy clinic to go to their pharmacy to pick up their meds. I feel like it should all be encompassing all in one. So to have that kind of all in one, like, hey, you can come see us, we can review your labs, adjust medications if needed, order a different HIV medication if this one's safer or better for you maybe renal function changed, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then it's right here. You don't have to go anywhere else. So it's perfect for the patient. It's easier access. And you probably also know what their insurance can cover. So it makes it easier at that point to make sure you're getting medications for them. So you definitely had, yeah, like you definitely had a unique opportunity and something that's super cool. So before even getting into the whole residency, I kind of wanted to ask you, what was your mindset of doing this residency? Because a lot of us don't think about doing a community pharmacy residency. Like, what's the point of that, right? Like, you can kind of just go right into the workforce. So what was your mindset and why did you decide to pursue this specific residency? Yes. Well, going through pharmacy school, I knew that I wanted to do a residency, period, because I knew that it was going to be a good challenge. Of course, taking what I learned through school and then doing it through real life application is something that I really wanted to gain. And actually... I had gone through 20 applications. All of them were acute care programs, largely outside the state of Florida. So it kind of put me behind the eight ball with getting matched to the program. So I ended up not matching phase one or phase two. I ended up going to the scramble to find the community. I just so happened to see this community program within the scramble with Ohio State. And during this time, I was communicating with some mentors through my college And they were mentors who had done community-based programs. And they're like, you know what? I know you are all for acute care. You want to be in a hospital setting, but give community like a chance. See what the program has to offer. See what they are able to provide you and see if that's something you want to go for. 
And so I took the gamble. I trusted my gut. I applied for OSU's community program, got it, and I don't regret it. So I will say, and like you had mentioned, Joven, when you're done with pharmacy school, you can go right into the community workforce. But with a community-based program, there are skills that you can definitely gain that you would not get by just going directly into the workforce. So with my program, I was required to not just do a research project in the community space, but then also do a quality improvement project within the community pharmacy and then implement a new service. And so all of that came up with developing a business plan, um, developing a policies and procedures, providing any associated training that came with that. So those are experiences that I gained throughout the year that I don't would not have been able to get just go going right into the workforce. So community-based programs, depending on what they offer, offer you a lot of direct community engagement with developing skills to better implement whatever services may be needed for whatever community you're taking care of. So there's a lot of benefit with doing a community-based program that I feel like students aren't aware of. Yeah. And that's exciting. I did not know that you did that. And just thinking back, I, I haven't released this episode yet, but I recently interviewed with with someone and we were kind of talking about the ways retail pharmacies can be different and implement possible services and create, you know, like business plans and how that's probably something schools should probably add to the curriculum, whether it's an elective or something like how to implement a service, right? Because these are things that you might have to do when you come out into the workforce if you don't do a residency, if you don't do a fellowship. And so that's super interesting that you had to go through that process. So do you mind kind of describing that experience? Yeah. So when it came to implementing a new service, like I mentioned, we have to come up with a business plan. Well, a part of that business plan is to not only look at the pharmacy and identify where there's a need. So you are getting insight into looking at what gaps there are within the workflow, but also coming up with a SWOT analysis to see, you know, what are the potential strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats, right? Yeah. Opportunities and threats with, you know, implementing the service, but then also doing a financial assessment to see financially, is this something that can be maintained? Is this something that would benefit the pharmacy? And so a requirement of doing this is that once it's implemented after an X number of weeks, you would do a final assessment to see what was the impact. And so for my new service, actually my quality improvement and new service were all one project, which made it, made it really nice. It was re-implementing and expanding on the naloxone protocol that we have all of our pharmacies in Ohio. So we, so just for some background, my practice site was at Equitas, an LGBTQ focused organization. And we have four clinics with pharmacies in-house throughout Ohio. So two in Columbus, one in Dayton, one in Cincinnati, and then we're opening a site in Akron later this month. And so we all have, um, on the Luxon protocol that we can dispense naloxone under for patients who are in need of it. So what I had done was implemented more streamlined policies and procedures to train pharmacists how to look at, in Florida, it's E-Force, in Ohio, it's called ORS. So looking at those C2 dispenses, being able to interpret what those numbers mean, training pharmacists and interns on that, required training as far as how to handle an opioid overdose and what training has to go into naloxone management for interns and the pharmacist. And then the policy and procedure of how it's going to be dispensed and things to think about under that. And so I had to do the SWOT analysis, financial assessments, and then the final assessment of looking at, okay, across the whole organization, how many naloxones did we dispense from before we started to after we started? And then financially, what did that look like? So if we're talking about access to medications, access to preventative care in the community space, it's skills that I'm so glad I had the opportunity to, to gain. Yeah. And those are, those are the managerial skills that we've never really learned in pharmacy school. And it's one of those that you might have to learn on the job when you go into the community setting. So it's nice right. when you start to build those in a residency and that kind of prepares you if you were to ever transition into a managerial type position if that's something that you know you want to pursue so that's super cool and interesting i didn't know that they had that opportunity and like 
looking back, <laughs> if I were to do community, like this would be something I would definitely be interested in because that's, that's valuable. You have to find a way to help your pharmacy be different than the other pharmacies. And one of the ways would be definitely implementing services and coming up with like that business plan, going through the financials, doing the SWOT analysis, because you're not going to learn that in school. That's only something you can learn from experience. And why not learn it under another company so that way you can implement it at your own future company or your own future job. So that's something that is definitely a unique experience that sounds pretty awesome that you were able to do. Yeah, for sure. And you can also see the impact that it has directly on patients too. Mm. So I feel like it's when you're inpatient, you can definitely develop a service. Of course, it's going to affect patients. But when you're in the community, you're directly engaging with the patient face to face. And so I remember there are some patients that would come to the counter. They would be aware that we're dispensing naloxone, but they would simply ask for it because, oh, I know of this friend or this person that had this event. And so it's like knowing that you are not only helping the person that's at the counter that you're helping, but also helping others that are not here. So. Yep. The word of mouth spreads and then other people are interested and want to do it. Man, perfect. So you kind of talked about that, the diverse patient population that you had during your residency experience. Was there any other unique opportunities or rotations that you had? So with a community-based residency, so the general structure, at least in my experience for my case, when you're the resident, you are at your practice site. Generally, that's your only practice site. So there aren't really rotations that you can do. Now, because I was affiliated with the College of Pharmacy at Ohio State, I was considered faculty and a requirement for our structure is to engage in some form of teaching. That was a requirement for the program. So I would assist with classes within the program. I would be facilitating courses, teaching students, engaging with students, not just in the classroom, but also at the pharmacy. So kind of playing a preceptor-ish type of role. And so when it comes to rotations, it's not inpatient to where you like have a certain focus for a couple of weeks and then you transition. Mm -hmm. It's more so you are in community practice. If you are interested in doing a rotation in academia, mm -hmm. that can be done, that can be established. Or if you want to do an experience for a few weeks, that's an ambulatory care that can also be facilitated because we have, well, Ohio State has a lot of outpatient ambulatory clinics that that can be facilitated for a few weeks. So you can establish those rotations, but it's not something that is like a requirement for you to kind of go through, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I got it. That makes sense. And most of the community pharmacy residencies that I've heard about are usually attached to some school. So it does make yeah. sense with you being Ohio State University, you have that opportunity to be involved in academia. So that makes sense. So how was it practicing pharmacy in like a new state? you know, being licensed and not the state that you went to pharmacy school. And it was cold. I hate the cold. So you have to let me know how that snow is. Oh my God. This past winter, it got down to negative seven. It got down oh, to MG. negative seven. Yeah. And I was flying out in that weather. I was the last plane to leave to head to Florida when it was negative seven. So got lucky there. But as far as practicing in another state, I did find myself within the pharmacy, like catching myself of like, having to clarify some law components because I would confuse it with like, was that pharmacy law? Was that Ohio law kind of thing? So I would catch myself kind of, you know, being sure and asking my preceptors. Otherwise, I feel like it would have been much of the same as far as community practice goes. Of course, maybe some changes in controlled substance and how you dispense those and how you manage those. But overall, much of the same from what I had seen laws between Ohio and Florida. Florida. So, okay. so I feel like it was a relatively smooth kind of transition with some stipulations here and there. Gotcha. Perfect. Yeah. The easier, the better. So you don't want mm -hmm. it to be too complex. So that's good. To hear. Right. So one of the things I always wonder with people who pursue a community pharmacy residency, it's like, what do you believe is the benefit? Like maybe the pros or cons to doing one who is it for? Because I've talked to some people and they feel it wasn't really worth it for them. And then I've talked to some people and they felt like it was worth it. So I, was, I just wanted your perspective on kind of like the pros or the cons or who do you feel would really benefit from having this type of experience? Right. I would say it's a very multifaceted kind of question. 
when it comes to doing a community-based residency, of course, it's like your relationships with your co-residents, your relationship with your site, your residency director, that kind of thing. So I would say for those who are considering going into a community-based residency, I would encourage you to think about what you're wanting to truly, truly get out of a residency experience. So for me, what I learned was that I had a huge, huge interest in public health, health prevention. And I felt like I could have more direct engagement with communities that are underserved through a community-based practice residency in hindsight, looking back now, than I would have been able to do in an acute care program. So if I'm thinking about my own personal need and my own personal interest to engage directly with patients who need that medication access, need that counseling, need that training, I was able to get it through a community-based program versus an acute care. Yeah, definitely. So I could see that. I could see that being beneficial and helping those individuals out. And that's always the tough question is, do I do this for a year or do I, no matter what type of residency it is, it's always that tough question. Like, should I pursue this or should I not? Can I do this another way? And I know those questions always come up. So I just wanted your perspective on that. So thank you. So kind of getting into the actual experience that you had at that residency. One of the key things that you mentioned is that your patient population is mainly of the LGBTQ plus community. And right. even through my experience working as a pharmacist for two years now, I would say I've probably had maybe like four or five patients, not that many. So I'm sure they've experienced certain things when it comes to healthcare and different things like that, whether it's, you know, a pronoun, not getting the respect that they feel they deserve. So I kind of wanted to talk to you about how did you communicate with people that are part of the LGBTQ plus community? What are things that us healthcare professionals can do to make sure we are communicating properly with them? Because we always want to be inclusive and make sure we're respecting our patients and also understanding and hearing their concerns, you know, very actively listening to everything that they have going on. So I wanted to kind of talk to you about what are some things that we can do to provide a better quality of care to these patients? Absolutely. And there are a lot of things that I could start off with, but I will definitely say that with such a diverse community are also going to come with it a huge diverse, I guess, huge diverse types of needs, if that makes sense. So diverse community, a diverse range of needs that are coming with that. Mm -hmm. And so I think a big part of it is thinking about what disparities this population lives with on their day-to-day and how that can play into their healthcare experience. So I know from my residency experience, there is lots of mistrust amongst the community. And when I say mistrust, I say largely the, the transgender community, but then also other gender diverse populations who I don't, who don't identify as transgender. There tends to be some mistrust amongst healthcare. There tends to be some avoidance behaviors just because of some discrimination they've experienced. And then that translates into their healthcare experience. So unfortunately, some of that has come from healthcare providers or simply healthcare providers not having the training or having the experience or knowledge that goes into managing this type of population. So I think a big starting step with understanding this community is how we communicate with these patients, for sure. Knowing that they are coming in with certain specific lived experiences and their needs are going to be very individualized. I think that's a big thing when it comes to the types of care that they need is that it's very individually based. So knowing how to communicate with them, seeing what their needs specifically are, and then also providing some self-education on how to communicate with these patients. One thing that I learned from my residency, and I didn't know this document had existed until my residency, but APHA had actually partnered with the Human Rights Campaign and developed a pharmacy resource guide in 2021. So it is a guide for providing inclusive care and services for the transgender and gender diverse community. Very useful, helpful document, and it outlines six areas in which pharmacists are able to develop more inclusive environments within their setting. So 
knowledge of key LGBTQ terms, inclusive communication, gender-related data management. So if we're talking about preferred names or names that they go by versus legal names, how do you implement that within your pharmacy, within your data management forms? How is that included? Visible symbols of support. So how is the environment of the pharmacy or the clinical setting displaying or visually displaying the support for the community, staff training, and then knowledgeable and patient-centered care. So the document is very streamlined in providing definitions on how to communicate with these patients, and then also trying to implement the best you can of thinking about how you can provide that level of education for, for staff. Is this APHA document readily available or do you have to be a member? It is. It is readily available. So I think that's something that I've been wanting to really highlight to the students that have come every month throughout my residency is showing them this document that it is out readily available and it's a very easily streamlined providing definitions of what means what, how to communicate with patients, and then thinking about how you can implement that within your practice setting to develop a more inclusive environment. Okay. And it's really, in, it's really, really interesting the disparities that go or that there currently are between pharmacists, pharmacy practice, and this patient population. If you don't mind, I have some information I would like to share. Yeah, please. That I hope please. viewers can get a sense of. So let me pull it back up here. Because the, so, the main reason why I, I, I brought this up and one of the main reasons why I wanted you on was because I don't feel like I handled the communication the best with somebody of the transgender community. So it's like, right. all right, what can I do to be better? And if I'm struggling with this, I'm sure other pharmacists are as well, right? And it's like, we're not trying to cause harm or be rude. So it's like, I need to learn more in order to be better prepared for the next time around. So, yeah. Absolutely. Which is where I think a lot of trying to address what those disparities are mm -hmm. comes at the educational level with, with colleges, correct? So I don't know about your experience. I can say for mine, I didn't get much LGBTQ plus healthcare concepts in my pharmacy education. Everything that I know right now had come from my residency. So if we're thinking about, you know, other programs throughout the country, if they provide it, it's not standardized. So the amount of education is definitely going to be varied. And that presents in some of the research that you currently find. And thankfully, there has been more research that has been done, I would say, in like the past five to 10 years with the gender diverse community, because as you can imagine, they've been left out of research. So now we're, they're starting to really be the forefront of what we're trying to really discover and find and how we can take better care of them. But when it came to me doing an initial literature search for one of, for my research project, it was pretty striking the disparities between pharmacy practice and the ways that these patients view pharmacists and really healthcare practice because they feel like their needs aren't met. So for example, I'd come across a survey conducted of 313 transgender gender diverse patients and about 42% indicated some or a lot of worry of discrimination from pharmacists in particular, which is pretty substantial with just over, with just over half indicating not at all or very little with perceiving pharmacists as being competent in providing gender for care. So that's, that's a huge deal. And so 91% said that they delayed seeking care with 80% concealing their gender identity during care. So if we're talking about concealment as being a behavior, concealment of their gender identity could also mean that they're concealing possibly specific needs that would help with preventative services. So delays in preventative care, if we're thinking about that avenue, is a huge thing. So you can see that there's this big disparity on views of those within the LGBTQ community with engaging with healthcare. And if you look on the flip side, 
of the views of pharmacists with LGBTQ care. It's another survey that I had come across of 63 community pharmacy residents, actually. And 82% thought that community pharmacists were important in providing care for gender diverse patients. Almost all of them, 98% thought that they have a responsibility to treat and manage these patients. However, only a third, 36% felt confident in their ability to do so. And even then, 81% reported not knowing local practitioners to refer the patients to. So if we're thinking about the need for care that these patients are trying to seek out, but the large discrepancies in, at least from this survey of pharmacists being able to meet that need or even refer that need, you see that healthcare engagement is very much limited here and it can manifest as a result. So it manifests in many different ways. So healthcare avoidance behaviors, because they feel like their needs aren't met or that communication is not to where they feel like they can communicate what their needs are. Obtaining gender affirming medications from other individuals. So within close friend networks or online pharmacies in some rare cases. A perceived lack of trust of healthcare professionals, again, not disclosing identity or healthcare needs, which then leads to delays in preventative services and screenings, and then receiving healthcare advice from alternative sources. So it's not uncommon to come across some chat rooms where people are talking about how did you access, you know, your specific medications, which providers in this area are good to go to, which ones are not good to go to. It's something that is very much present and impacts the ability for these patients to access care that they need. Yeah. And that's, that's very surprising. So I just, two of the stats that really struck out to me just listening was you said, just to be clear, 42% of members of the LGBTQ plus community feel that they do not get like the proper care that they need. 42% indicated like either some worry or a lot of worry of discrimination from discrimination. So a lot of discrimination from pharmacists and then about 36% of pharmacists, a little bit over a third feel they are not well equipped in order to communicate with patients of this community and, and provide the right proper counseling and be able to help treat these patients. Is that correct? Correct. Only a third of the 63 residents felt competent in their ability to do so. And if we're thinking about residents, these are individuals who are just fresh out of school. So if this few number of residents feel confident in their ability to manage this population, we can definitely see how education is still lacking in being able to provide the skills necessary to take care of them. And also keep in mind that these residents practice amongst their peers, many of whom go into the inpatient setting. So if we're thinking about translating these gaps to the inpatient setting, we could probably presume that it's in there as well. Yeah, definitely. So so it's definitely a huge deal. Okay. One of the things I love that you did is that you provided a resource that we can all access on ASHP. So what I'm definitely going to do is try to find that resource and include it in the show notes. So anybody that's listening can go to the show notes and access it. And maybe you can incorporate that or bring it up at your next pharmacy meeting, whatever the case. So that way, there's a running document for all the pharmacists to refer to. You can kind of have that readily available whenever you have a member of the LGBTQ plus community. So that way you're able to kind of follow these stream, the streamlined document to help you provide the best quality care that you can. Yeah, absolutely. And I have other resources as well. Specifically, research that I have come across that has been published more recently within the past couple of years, even past year, to where pharmacists, even students can refer to as far as other suggestions that have been published to help alleviate stressors that it's experienced within yeah. the population. Yeah, if you don't mind sharing it, I'll definitely include it in the show notes. I appreciate yeah, it. Absolutely. And so what would you say are some of the challenges you personally had to face working in the community pharmacy setting with LGBTQ plus patients? 
So they can be quite varied. If I'm thinking about immediately challenges off of the top of my head, as you can imagine, a lot of these patients are considered underserved populations. And so if we're thinking about disparities, not just in healthcare, but health disparities in their lived experiences, they have possibly less access to health insurance. So if we're talking about affording medications, not just for um, hormone replacement therapy, but also for HIV medications, which as we know, cost thousands of dollars. How do we go about managing and facilitating that access to crucial life-saving medication? Which thankfully in my practice setting, all the pharmacists are very knowledgeable of medication access programs to assist patients in doing so. So we would normally have some avenue to assist patients. But if we're, if we're talking specifically about the gender diverse transgender patients that would come into our pharmacy, it wasn't uncommon for a script to be sent over for someone initiating a hormone therapy, but then the insurance company completely blocking it because, oh, this person identifies as female, but they're being initiated on testosterone. You know, we're not going to cover that. Why do they need it? So we would have to tell patients, you know, we have to put a prior authorization for this medication. It may take a few days, may take possibly a little bit longer, depending. And so it's definitely barriers that can be prevented if we're talking about medication access. And then other barriers, I think, with this population, and it's one that I feel like I've become very passionate about, is for post-exposure prophylaxis for HIV, which if you're not as familiar for someone who is exposed to um, or has an encounter in which an individual tests positive for HIV or is living with HIV, you initiate post-exposure prophylaxis, generally 28 days duration. I've had experiences throughout the year where patients are sending scripts to us or scripts have been transferred to our pharmacy from local emergency rooms and they've been written incorrectly, incorrect medication or dose or incorrect duration. And so thinking about, for example, there was this one patient who was coming in with, with PEP from a local emergency room. The scripts were only written for two weeks. And so I can tell that this patient was a lower income, possible risk of her not going, not coming back if she left. So I had to figure this out right here, right now. So luckily in our clinic, we had some samples of Victarvi that I could provide for her uh, for a month. Okay. But that's just, an, it, that's just an example, right, of where not being as familiar with managing the needs that go with managing this population and can be a threat because if we're thinking about just two weeks of PEP therapy, that's not appropriate to fully prevent possible seroconversion. So having that knowledge available is really, really important. Yeah. And that's the other thing you mentioned too, is not every pharmacy will just have samples like that, you know? And it's, right. it was, that's a plus that you're able to have where you're at, but that's going to be tough if other locations don't. Right. And it was actually in a clinic site. So it was the ambulatory clinics that had the samples, mm -hmm. not necessarily the pharmacy. It wasn't the pharmacy that had them. Yeah. And then once those samples were gone, they were gone. Yeah. So she, she was a, she was a lucky instance, but it wasn't the first time. So it's something I've become very passionate about. If we're thinking about prep and PEP access in the community pharmacy setting, having it more readily available for pharmacists to be able to dispense from the pharmacy those medications to prevent a possible new HIV infection. It's huge, 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 huge. Yeah. So that's an area that I've grown pretty passionate about. Yeah, and as we all should, and that that just got me thinking, I'll, I'll probably look into my hospital system. I'm going to actually write this down while I'm talking to you because it makes me think, I know in Florida, they passed a law where they really basically want like all prescriptions sent electronically. So it's easier if it's in like a power plant or like an order set. Like if you're just searching for PEP, 
it already has everything correct in the order set. If you're using like Epic, because that's what we use at our hospital system. I don't know if that's what they yep, use. That's what we use. Yeah. So you probably a little bit familiar with Epic. So it's like if they have like the order set already in their system, they could just click one and then it has the right amount of days, the right amount of duration, all that. And then you just send the script to, to the pharmacy. So what I was hearing you talk, I was wondering, I don't know if that's as popular over there as far as like sending electronic prescriptions, like maybe because if it's on paper, you might not realize, you know, you put in the wrong amount of days and whatnot. As far as Ohio, mm -hmm. I don't know if they have like a law where they're kind of gearing towards more electronic rather than written prescriptions. Oh, yeah. Most most prescriptions that we receive are definitely electronic. Just every once okay. in a while on a blue moon, we'll have patients drop off hard copy scripts at our pharmacy. But most are definitely electronic for sure. Yeah. And so it helps with the order set because once you have everything in there, it's like you can just search it, has the medications, it has the certain parameters, renal function is this, you go with this one, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can just send that off to the local pharmacy that they would like to pick it up at. So that's something I'll probably look into to see if we have here in Florida just to help prevent, like you said, because that's it's only going to put more stress on, on the healthcare environment and it becomes unfortunate because that's a person that we could have prevented from experiencing from developing HIV, you know, that's the whole point of doing this is to prevent it. And if we kind of talk, talked about it, preventative care, that's a key thing that we're trying to implement more when it comes to not just LGBTQ plus community, but in pharmacy in general, anybody with low socio socioeconomic backgrounds is really providing more preventative services to prevent more healthcare disparities and more health issues. So that's something that you know, I'm, I'm proud of you. I'm glad to hear that you're passionate about it. And I'm sure you're making a difference already. And now you just inspired me to make sure we're making a difference too here in Florida. So that's something I'm definitely going to look into the next time I work. So thank you for kind of sharing those, those stories with us. Yeah. And there are important just stipulations to consider as well when it comes to PrEP and what regimen you use for PEP. Because if you think about Truvada as a medication, the combination of Emtricitabine and tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate. Mm -hmm. That one can be utilized with those with penile tissue and vaginal tissue. However, Discovi, which is emtricitabine and tenofovir alicinamide, and that can only be used in those with penile tissue as of right now. So, Discovi, I believe, and don't quote me, I believe Discovi is currently being evaluated for its effectiveness in those with vaginal tissue. But if we're talking about doing a sexual inventory, whenever someone goes into an emergency setting and they're experiencing a post-exposure and their need to be placed on post-exposure prophylaxis, and if we're talking about effectiveness based off of what is currently recommended, it's important to kind of know those stipulations as far as what is most appropriate to have on board for patients. So, yeah, no, thank you for sharing. Cause, and, and that's something where I always say this, it's, there's reasons why there's specialty doctors. Like it's impossible to know everything. Like you can't expect yes. the ED doctor to know everything about every single medication and disease state. You Absolutely. Know? And if it's a specialty situation that comes in, this is probably maybe what they learned. Maybe they're not the most up to date on HIV on some of the new treatments. Um, especially if they're an older physician, they may not be the most up to date. So this is what they used to practice, but they might be better information out that this is what's best for this patient population. And so it's tough, even as pharmacists, if you're not very familiar in, in the specialty setting. I know I came across multiple patients during my residency in the ambulatory care clinic where I would help other residents out with their patients because they didn't have a specialty rotation as a student. So I did. So I knew like, all right, for hepatitis C, I'm like, no, this isn't right. Like, no, they should probably be on this. I don't know why the doctor prescribed this. This is the first time we didn't even get a genome. Like, why are they on Maverick? You know, like different things like that. Like, we don't even know which one it is. Nobody got the test up. So it's like, you might as well get the right towards all of them. So it's like, this isn't right. Or maybe they ordered it incorrectly. And so it's just like, or counseling points, like, oh, make sure you tell them that they have to take this with food. They have to take all three at once. It's not three times a day type of thing. So different things like that, that's very important. So that way they don't mess up the dosing and also understand, stress the importance of, hey, this is a primary medication. You need to treat this like it's a warfarin, like it's an eloquence, like you cannot miss doses, like really stress that. 
because if you don't, you run the risk of that infection or that disease progressing and now worsening your health. And so that's something to definitely stress and make sure they understand the importance of taking some of these medications. And I had the luxury of doing a specialty rotation, but it's tough to expect someone to have knowledge on every disease state. Like same thing, I think we had a couple of patients with MS. So it's like, how many times do you have a patient yeah. with MS in an ambulatory care clinic that pops up? So it's like, right, it's just, absolutely. yeah, so it's, it's so many different things that you may not have a background in and it's tough for you to know. And sometimes they just throw it on you out of nowhere. So it's like on the spot, what do I do? You don't have enough time to really do your research and work up the patient. So it could be a, an immediate admission to the schedule. And so that's why it's like, you know, you got to cut some people some slack sometimes and, and make opportunities, have, have a system to where it's less possible for mistakes to happen. And that's why I'm mentioning if you're listening, if you work for a healthcare system, see about maybe implementing an order set or some type of order panel or they're typing in PEP. These are the options. It includes what Victor was kind of saying, if it's only penile, if it's only, if it's vaginal and or penile, this is what's recommended. And so that way they can remind themselves to go ask that patient, hey, what happened here? Now that we know, all right, this is the best recommended medication for them. And they can just order it and send that electronic prescription right away. And they don't have to put too much stress on themselves to try to find the research in a, in a setting where it's very chaotic. If you've ever been in the ED, you'll know what I mean. Oh, you might have like three codes going on. Then you have this patient, you have a lot of stuff going on in the ED. So it's a very stressful, high acuity environment. So you definitely want to have easier access for physicians and pharmacists to be able to provide the best care possible. And so kind of streamlining that process, which I feel like that's the key word today is streamlining things to make yes, it easier for, for all healthcare professionals. Yeah. Okay. So to wrap things up, what would you say is one message you would like our audience to walk away with today? My message is to think about what's happening with our current environment as far as like legislatively, politically, what's happening there. And more and more services are being limited. As pharmacists, we have the ability to be a huge, huge access point for these patients who are in need of services, in need of care, in need of possibly a simple referral. I think my main message is to think about how you can implement awareness of points that you may be able to refer patients to, or even doing your own little tidbit of education on LGBTQ care, because you do come across these patients relatively frequently. And so their specific needs, especially in this time, is going to be huge in making sure that we as an access point serve them the best that we can. I think a big thing with pharmacy is we are huge advocates. Every health profession is an advocate for their patient, especially in the outpatient setting when we are pretty readily accessible. I think that rings true more than ever. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I don't know if it's still true. I heard that we got we got knocked off our pedestal a little bit because that at one point, I believe we were the most trusted healthcare professionals. I've heard that we might have been knocked off from number one, but we're still, I think, like in the top three. But pharmacists are pretty well trusted in the community. And we want to make sure that we're still doing the best that we can for our patient population, no matter their background, no matter how they identify. So quality care should always come first. And this is one of the reasons why I'm fortunate and, and blessed to have you on here. So that way you can kind of teach us, educate us, provide us resources to help better treat the different patients that come across our, our setting, whether it's in the community, the AmCare clinic, a specialty clinic, in the hospital, whatever background you work in as a pharmacist, even if it's managed care, maybe you can think about different ways to help the insurance plan and stuff like that if you're listening to this. So I definitely believe this was a, an impactful episode, a powerful episode, definitely motivate me <laughs> to make some changes. So I'm definitely going to reach out to my manager and, and see what we have prepared um, so that way we can make sure we're doing right with our our hospital and our healthcare system here in Florida. So thank you so much, Victor. Excuse me, Dr. Course, Perez now. You. Dr. Perez now. <laughs> I gotta give you, I gotta give you your props. Woof. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dr. Perez now. PGY1 trained Dr. Perez. Yes, 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 yes. yes. So, so thankful to have you on. I appreciate you being on here. Um, Thank you so like, much for having me. Of course, of course. You're always welcome back if you ever want to come on or if you ever want to hang out, come back to Florida, just let me know. And then also, anybody that's listening, as I said earlier, I'm definitely going to include the resources in the show notes. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me. I definitely would love to help you. If anybody wanted to reach out to you and talk to you, Victor, what would be the best way for somebody listening to connect with you? Uh, you can reach out to my Gmail, which I'm happy to provide as well. Or if you'd like me to say it now, I definitely can. Yeah, it's up to you. And I can include it in the show notes. Okay. It's victorgp95.usf at gmail.com. Okay, perfect. So you heard it there. I'll also include in the show notes if you didn't catch it. Please, if you're driving, don't try to stop. <laughs> don't, don't pull out your phone and try to jot it down. It'll be in the show notes. So please don't harm anybody. And then... Do you have anything you want to promote or any upcoming projects that, that you're working on? Uh, currently, um, I have my residency research project, which was looking at how behaviors and perceptions of pharmacists and pharmacy care is changed when those services become readily available. Currently, it is submitted for publication with the anticipation if it were to get accepted fingers crossed of coming up for publication in january so it's very very insightful stuff it's something that from me and my research team it's something that has not been investigated in current literature specifically in the community pharmacy setting so it's something we're very very excited about so keep an eye out for us and which journal did you send it to to jaffa okay Perfect. So be on the lookout for that. Hopefully uh, early next year it gets published. So we'll see. Um, And then that's it. So thank you so much, Dr. Perez, for coming on, blessing us with your presence and providing some great information and quality care on how we can improve um, patient care when it comes to members of the LGBTQ plus community. Thank you. Did you learn something valuable from this episode? Then I highly recommend you like, comment, follow, and subscribe to our new YouTube channel at new underscore capsule rx podcast. And we're also on Instagram and TikTok with the same name at new underscore capsule rx podcast on all platforms.